It's May 1821, on the small island of St. Helena in the South Atlantic. Waves crash against the shore as the island's most famous inhabitant passes the time skipping stones on the beach. As he gazes out on the horizon, he's reminded that it's over a thousand miles from the nearest major landmass and a ten-week boat trip from his homeland. As he ponders the life he's lived, a growing anger grips him. He had it all. He practically had the rule over continental Europe, but he could have had more. More land, more subjects, a larger army, more riches, more priceless artwork, more, more, more. Suddenly a strong pain racks his stomach and he winces. They've increased in frequency of late. He then walks back up to his island mansion for the final time. In just a few days, he'll be dead. But no matter. Death is preferable to this life of dignified ignominy. Death is nothing, but to live defeated and inglorious is to die daily. Napoleon Bonaparte Virtuous Man, a podcast devoted to sharing the lives of men of history, fiction, and today, and the virtues they personify. Welcome to our latest mini-pod season. This season will explore the seven deadly sins, a man who personified each one, and the opposing virtue needed to defeat them. Welcome to episode two, The Greed of Napoleon Bonaparte. A sin is an immoral behavior that one performs in direct opposition to virtue. To every good action, there is an evil action. For every virtue, there is a vice. Both forces work against one another in the hearts and minds of mankind for the benefit and destruction of humanity. Stories of history and fiction have clearly revealed the truth that while every man is capable of great virtue, so too is he capable of unspeakable evil. This duality was famously summarized in what is known as the Seven Deadly Sins. First listed by Pope Gregory I in the 6th century, and then further developed by Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, the list highlights the key sins in human nature that ultimately lead to destruction and death. This episode's sin is greed. Greed is an uncontrollable, unquenchable desire to acquire more of something by any means necessary. This can take on the form of material possessions like goods, money, and land. It can also involve social value, status, or power. The greed of an individual not only leads to the ultimate demise of themselves, but can directly result in the deprivation of others. The debate over how much is too much has raged throughout the centuries leading to polarizing economic and political viewpoints. But the greed of some men sets the bar so high that few would debate its validity. One such man was Napoleon Bonaparte. In this episode we'll explore the life of the infamous French military commander and discover how his odious desire for more led to not only his own downfall, but to the demise of one of the largest armies ever assembled and their empire along with it.
Napoleon. The name is still instantly recognizable over 200 years after his death. Some historians list him only behind Jesus Christ in a list of the most significant men in human history. He was technically more Italian than French. Born in 1769 on the island of Corsica off the Italian mainland, Napoleone de Bonaparte's homeland was ruled by the French and as an adolescent he was sent to the French mainland for schooling. There he learned to speak the language fluently, but never lost his Corsican accent, for which he was roundly mocked by his classmates. In 1789, when he was 20, France was rocked by a brutal civil war that lasted over a decade, the French Revolution. France was transformed from a hereditary monarchy into a republic. The Catholic Church was heavily persecuted, their power greatly diminished, and a series of massacres and executions took place under revolutionary leaders like Maximilien Robespierre. Napoleon himself wasn't a monarchist, nor was he a Jacobin revolutionary. He was an opportunist, and he had a keen insight for which way the wind was blowing. By 1793, other European powers had thrown their weight behind the French monarchy in an attempt to end the revolution. This led to Napoleon's rise to fame and power. In August, with the Royal Navy besieging the port city of Toulon, Napoleon hatched a plan to assault the Royalist-held city and his artillery tactics led to the Republican victory and a complete withdrawal of the Anglo-Spanish forces supporting the French Royalists. Napoleon was duly promoted from Captain to Brigadier General at the tender age of 24. The turmoil in France continued. In the summer of 1794, the Jacobin government in Paris fell and the revolutionary leader Robespierre was met with the same grisly end so many French citizens had at his behest, the guillotine. Ever the political tactician, Napoleon then sought to distance himself from the now deposed Jacobins as his ambition to rise to more power continued. In 1795, when a counter-revolutionary mob of 30,000 threatened to storm the Tuileries Palace, Napoleon was asked to put an end to the protests. He obliged, turning French guns on his own people, killing 300. It seemed nothing would get in the way of his hunger to strengthen his political influence. As he said afterwards, If you treat the mob with kindness, these creatures fancy themselves invulnerable. If you hang a few, they get tired of the game. Just a few weeks later he was made a full general and given command of the Army of the Interior. Over the next decade he won victory after victory pushing the Austrians out of Italy in 1796. At the Battle of Lodi his Armée d'Italie won a famous victory and Napoleon earned the absolute loyalty of his men through tactical brilliance and both a ruthlessness towards the enemy and a tenderness towards his own troops. As in politics, Napoleon's tactics on the battlefield were thus. Target the enemy's vulnerabilities, move quickly, and attack with surprise and gain the psychological advantage. Napoleon founded two newspapers at this time to distribute throughout his army. One publication wrote, Bonaparte flies like lightning and strikes like thunder. He is everywhere and sees everything. 
He then turned his attention to Africa and the trade access to the Mediterranean and East Indies. In 1798, Napoleon decided to take an expedition of 50,000 men to Egypt in an effort to relieve the British of their influence there. But while the infantry were involved in the Battle of the Pyramids, in which Napoleon's men claimed a decisive victory over the Ottomans and Mamluks, his fleet laid an anchor in Abukir Bay. Napoleon thought the fleet of 17 ships were protected as they sat aligned with their guns facing the opening to the bay. But Napoleon hadn't accounted for the brilliance of one Horatio Nelson. The British Admiral took the element of surprise, cut across the French lines in two divisions and trapped the French Navy in their crossfire. Anchored, they were sitting ducks. Nelson's ships pummeled the French warships and just four of the 17 managed to escape the bay. Almost 2,000 French sailors were killed in the slaughter. With his men now trapped without a navy, Napoleon was forced to abandon the Egyptian campaign and return home. But Napoleon, ever the tactician, spun the defeat into something useful. He then led another campaign in Italy, culminating in the Treaty of Amiens in 1802, and Europe entered a period of relative peace. Over the next five years, he used his time away from the battlefield to direct his energy toward politics. Recognizing the power that art played in the psyche of the French public, he created the Musée Napoleon in Paris, an art museum that brought together the works of the greatest painters and sculptors in the world. We now know this museum by another name, the Louvre. Not missing the opportunity to gain prestige from this museum, Napoleon commissioned many artists to paint his portrait celebrating his many military and political victories. By 1804, Napoleon, then 35, was the undisputed leader of the French Republic. And on December 2nd, he was crowned Emperor of the French in Notre Dame Cathedral. Pope Pius VII had made the trip from Rome for the ceremony, but not wanting to be seen as bowing to the authority of the church, Napoleon did the unthinkable. He snatched the crown out of the Pope's hands and placed it on his own head. He then leaned over to his brother and whispered, With a great victory over the new coalition of England, Austria, Prussia and Russia at Austerlitz in 1805, Napoleon made plans for the Grand Empire. He was now Emperor of the French, King of Italy, Protector of the German Confederation and Mediator of the Helvetian or Swiss Confederation. But his continental system, the blockade of Europe against British trade, was slowly falling apart as he just didn't have enough men to man every port from the Mediterranean, around Gibraltar and up to the Baltic, a coastline of 120,000 miles. Exports from Britain were streaming into the Iberian Peninsula and Russia. His first move was to invade Spain, but although he was at first successful, 
the toll of the Peninsular War was one of attrition, and the development of the campaign into a war against the Spanish insurgency led to French defeat and eventual withdrawal. In fact, the Spanish tactics of guerrilla, or little war, irregulars and civilians rising up against an occupying force, are where we now get the widely used term guerrilla warfare. Not deterred, the one thing that never changed about Napoleon was his appetite for more, and he turned his attention to the last great landmass left to conquer, Russia. This would mark the beginning of the end. A peace treaty was signed with the Russian Tsar in 1807 at Tilsit, but hostilities did not abate for long. War was declared again in April 1812, and Napoleon mobilized the largest European army in history, with 480,000 men, alongside 120,000 reserves, his Grand Armée. The arrogance of Napoleon is highlighted in his comments to his wife upon his departure for war. He told her he'd be back in two months. The French met scant resistance as they poured through Germany and into Eastern Europe. In some countries they were even greeted as liberators. But in Napoleon's short-sightedness and egotistical arrogance, he had only prepared his men for a 12-day foray into Russian territory. The plan from the beginning was only to enter the edge of Russia to make a point and then to force the Tsar's hand into capitulating to Napoleon's demands. But with the whole of Russia now at his fingertips, greed set in and hubris was the driving force of Napoleon's actions from then on out. He decided to go for broke and push a full 700 miles all the way to Moscow. He had fallen right into the Russian trap. All they needed to do was continually beat a strategic withdrawal now lulling the French further and further away from their supply lines and organized plan. As Napoleon's men marched painfully and slowly towards Moscow, their sheer numbers made for an inescapable problem. Disease. As the leaves of the Russian forest surrounding them turned golden brown, a quarter of his men had already perished. This was just the beginning. At the start of September, they finally met the Russian army at the Battle of Borodino, 80 miles west of Moscow. Although it would ultimately be a French victory, it was an utter bloodbath on both sides. There were 70,000 casualties in a single day of fighting in the largest land battle in Europe until the First World War. Napoleon entered Moscow on September 14th, but their victory would ring hollow. The city had been deserted, and the Muscovites had left no food and poisoned the drinking water before their exodus. Then, the fire started, as Muscovites decided they'd rather burn their own city to the ground than hand it over to the French. Sitting in the Kremlin, this was the most hollow victory imaginable to Napoleon, and after just a month of occupation, he ordered his troops to pack up and make for home. But most would never see home again. On the return march, the early onset of the harsh Russian winter would claim another half of his men. 
less than a hundred thousand of the six hundred thousand strong Grand Armée would make it back home. The French army and artillery had been obliterated. Never mind expanding his empire. Napoleon now lacked the manpower to keep the empire he already had. French forces were defeated at the Battle of Leipzig in October of 1813, and the Allies then invaded France. The gig was up, and on April 2nd, 1814, the Senate voted in favour to depose Napoleon, and he abdicated. He was sent into exile on the island of Elba, off the west coast of Italy. But this wasn't the end of Napoleon's greed. His ambition wouldn't be quenched. In March 1815, he landed near Nice and marched north to seize the opportunity to rise to power once more. Louis XVIII abandoned the throne and Napoleon was once again made leader of France. In response, the Allies led by the Duke of Wellington mobilized a force of 800,000 men to defeat Napoleon once and for all. Napoleon knew he was outmanned, so he moved first. In modern-day Belgium, a showdown was thus set just south of Brussels in a place named Waterloo. On June 18, 1815, the battle commenced. A night of heavy rain delayed Napoleon's attack on Wellington's troops, and this gave the Prussians time to reinforce them, giving the Allies a numerical advantage of 2 to 1. Napoleon's troops were overwhelmed. By sunset, the French were in total collapse, and 50,000 men lay dead or wounded. For a second time, on June 22nd, Napoleon faced abdication. This time the English made sure there would be no third coming of Bonaparte. On the 25th, he boarded the Royal Navy HMS Bellerophon and surrendered to Captain Maitland. To Napoleon's surprise, the British government didn't set him up in exile in a lavish cottage in the English countryside. Instead, he was sent to the South Atlantic, to the small island of St. Helena, where six years later, he would die of stomach cancer. An ignominious end to a man once so powerful and influential that a major global war that lasted over a decade now bears his name, the Napoleonic Wars. Napoleon had everything, fame, prestige, riches, and the love and loyalty of his countrymen. But his life ended on a foreign island that was much like a natural prison. His last words were, Josephine his first wife, and the army. Greed is something we can all struggle with, and something we must overcome if we are to live lives of virtue. The virtue that opposes greed is contentment. Contentment is the state of satisfaction with what one has, be it small or great. This should not be confused with laziness or idleness. Contentment with what we have guards against the covetousness of what others have. 
and prevents us from descending into the nonsense of hoarding what we have. May we learn from the example of men like Napoleon and choose contentment over greed, virtue over sin. This episode of Virtuous Man was written and recorded by me, Jamie Adams, and edited by Scott Einig. Tune in next Monday for episode 3 of our 7 Deadly Sins series, The Sin of Wrath.